Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, folks. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got a fantastic guest lined up for you today. I always have fantastic guests lined up, but today uh, we have Jonathan Brill with us. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to this. And and listeners, uh, here's exactly why I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Uh, Anyone who has their finger on the pulse of modern technological advancements knows that we are standing on the shores of radical change. And Jonathan Brill is exactly the expert to go to during these uncertain times. He was a senior leader and the global futurist at Hewlett Packard, a creative director at Frog Design, is managing director at Resilient Growth Partners, and a board member at Frost & Sullivan, a major market intelligence firm. Jonathan is also the author of Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change, which is something we're going to talk about quite a bit during uh, the course of this discussion. But Jonathan, with all that in mind, I'm really excited to hear how you answer that first question where I start out all of my guests. When you hear the term responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? To me, responsible leadership is about two things. Understanding how to move the organization forward in a changing environment and providing safety and space for growth for your team. When you think about the, uh, the Titanic, there were two interesting things that happened. Uh, the first is that there were 1,800, 1800 icebergs that crossed the the parallel that the Titanic was going across from England to the United States. And they were going full speed and they expected that was just kind of going to be fine because they were a big ship. They weren't thinking about the environment. They weren't thinking what would happen if their expectations were wrong. The second thing that happened when uh, the iceberg hit the Titanic is 90 minutes into the emergency, the majority of the crew didn't know that they'd hit an iceberg. We think about what happened on the Titanic as um, a terrible incident. We, we, we hear about how there weren't enough lifeboats. But what I think most people don't understand is that not all of the lifeboats were even put in the water. People weren't prepared for the situation. The crew didn't know there was an issue. Uh, Not everybody could be saved, but not everybody who could be saved was. And so the question as a leader is how do you deal with those two things? The first, 
the external environment, your relationship with it as an organization, how to take advantage of that, how to avoid risk. And then the second thing is communicating with your crew, how the world is changing, how you need them to innovate, how you need them to support you, and how you can, what you're doing to keep them safe in brutal situations. Those are the things I think a leader needs to do if you want to avoid that Titanic moment. Mm. No, that, that is a good place to, to start the conversation because uh, I really like that answer and I really like that example uh, because as you were talking about that, the word that kept popping into my brain uh, was, was hubris, right? I think that that led to a lot of those things that you just unpacked there. Like, why were they not concerned about the icebergs? Well, when you've been through production and everybody talks about, you know, you're being unsinkable and, and, and you're invincible and all of these things that were being used to talk about the Titanic, you lulled yourself in this kind of a false sense of security. And when you lull yourself in that false sense of security, you don't feel the, the need uh, to practice and run the drills because you're never going to have to use the lifeboat. So in that instance where it happens, you're in shock. And when you haven't trained appropriately because you don't think it can happen, uh, then you, you don't really know how and you panic. And as you mentioned, you don't deploy all the lifeboats and you don't save everybody you can. Is that, uh, does that sound pretty close to, to your line of thinking there? I would expand even further on that. Um, Go for it. When you assume disruption, you maximize your ability to take risk. You maximize your ability to grow. You maximize your opportunity. When you try to avoid disruption, when you say, hey, I can mitigate, completely mitigate, stop this thing in its tracks, you continue to put yourself at risk because just new things will happen. A, a perfect example, because we're talking about the Titanic, it's sister ship. Uh, after the, the Titanic sunk, they, 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 retrofitted it they they put new steel in so that if the if if the 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 um bottom of the ship flooded like it the water wouldn't go into the next compartment uh, and they put in special doors that would shut all of them would shut at the same time when uh when if something like that happened well that happened to the sister ship guess what happened uh the mechanism that was supposed to close the doors it didn't work. My point here is that you can prepare for disruption, super important to do, but you should also expect to be disrupted. You should also expect that, that when those moments happen, it's probably just not for you. It's probably for all of your competition too. And if you have designed an aircraft carrier, it's going to be really hard to write that ship. But if you've designed a kayak, you can flip your kayak faster you know, then your competition and well, it's black ocean for them. Well, it's bloody ocean for your competition. It's blue ocean for you. It's fresh opportunity. And so what we need to focus on isn't just mitigating risk, but how do we take advantage? How do we become resilient to changes that have overwhelmed us so that we have room to run so that we have opportunities when others don't. There was a recent uh, cross-sectoral study by McKinsey uh, from, uh, I think, 2001 to 2014. So we got a nice you know, financial disruption in there. 
And mm-hmm. what they discovered across sectors is that companies that plan for the long term, companies that plan for resilience, they have about 81% higher economic profits over time. And so what I'm talking about isn't just a philosophy. It's not just a nice to have. It's not just like eat your vegetables. What I'm saying is that if you invest in short-termism, if you invest in the quarter, if you assume that things will be all right, if you will assume that your plans work, you will have 81% lower economic profits over time versus your competitors. So this is a foundational concept in business. And, and, and we, we don't really think about our external environment. We don't really think about what would happen to our strategy. Imagine if demand generation went to uh, zero, if you were a, you know, a dentist in the, uh, at the beginning of COVID, right? No one had actually considered that concept. It was, it was a, a, a shock. It was a stunner for them. But if you just start to imagine, okay, well, what would happen if these things did occur? What you find is that you aren't necessarily resilient to a pandemic or a, a meteor hitting the earth, right? You become resilient to anything. And in those moments of disruption, that's when you can take market share. You know, I have a friend, a, a, a dentist who took that downtime at the beginning of COVID, he rebuilt his sales pipeline, he rebuilt his online marketing, he rebuilt, you know, all of that stuff in his business while everyone else was, you know, taking some time off and going mountain biking. Over 2020, he increased his sales 30%, whereas his competitors were crushed. So my point being, that these aren't hard things. These aren't things that only big companies can do. They're things that, you know, sole proprietor medical practices can do too. It's a, it's a mindset, you know, it's a mindset shift. It's not just a, a, a capital capability. Like it's not just something that Amazon or bank of America can do. It's something that everyone can do. I've worked with my friend's family farm to increase their resilience. They had similar results. They doubled their sales over COVID. Um, everyone can do this. It, it, it just comes down to this idea that, you know, we need to focus on the reality that it's far more likely that we'll be disrupted than be the disruptor. It's far more likely that, uh, uh, nature will overcome the dams. The nature will overcome the locks. Ma- nature will overcome, you know, the levees than not, you know, and, and I feel like every time I say this, I'm asking people to eat their vegetables, you know, but it's a basic truth that if you increase your fitness for, for the change, the likelihood of your thriving versus people who stuck around and got future flabby, you know, uh, is much greater. You want to be future fit instead of future flabby. Yeah. No, I, I love that. That is uh, so much there. Like so much was racing through my mind, but I, I tell you that the one thing that really uh, kept, kept coming uh, into my, into my brain as a great example was, uh, you know, hearing Gene Kranz talk about NASA and how they were able to make those split second, you know, go, no go type decisions was because of the process that you just laid out, planning, being ready. And mm-hmm. and he talked about the process that they had 
you know, not being so much about planning for the things that they knew how to plan for, right? They had the engineers uh, that were there and they knew that, you know, if this alarm happened, this is what they should do. And he's like, we could plan for those things and we could, we could run exercises for those very easy. He goes, and that was great because we knew that those were things that were likely to fail, but going through the process built, I love the word resiliency, but it built resiliency and it built this, this uh, muscle memory on how to handle the things that we couldn't necessarily plan for, how to make decisions, how to function uh, in that environment and, and handle the unforeseen. Um, and, and so I really, I really like where you're going with this because, you know, bringing another kind of cliche from the military in there, uh, you know, they, they, we say that everybody's got a plan until the first bullet starts flying. Right. <laughs> you know, because then that's when the chaos ensues and cause you, you can, you can guess what the enemy is going to do up until a certain point, but once you start acting, you create a ripple force in in that environment. And the same thing in the market where you change everything that you knew up until that point, right? Right. Yeah. Typically the thing in uh, complex systems and analog systems is exactly what you're saying, that it's not the the first order effect that gets you. It's, it's the second and the third order effect that, that, drives you nuts you know that it's 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 not what you do it's what does your competitor do as a result or what does the environment do as a result or you know it's it's the butterfly effect kind of problem which is a weather guy you probably know a lot about um uh and so the question becomes okay so we know that the world goes crazy we know that we need to be prepared for it we know that you know probably we're we're small business medium business operators we know that we don't have you know two years of cash on hand so how do how do you do it uh and there are a couple of simple concepts uh three simple concepts that that i talk about that i think about that really help and and this is where like getting into the book helps because i dig into more depth than we can cover here. So this is like awareness, but if you want mastery, you know, go to the next level deeper into the book, Rogue Waves. Um, but the first thing is what I call an impact amplifier. So anytime you deal with any complex system, engineer, design a system, you you want to be thinking about three things. And, and you see these if you've ever designed a contract, written a contract, right? Timing. Right. Can we change the time at which things happen? Right. Do I want to pay someone before they do the work or after they do the work? One of these radically changes my risk in a lot of cases. Right. Um, uh, sequencing. Right. That, that, so, so timing, like how, how long do I have to, to respond? Like, is it net 30 or is it the same day? The say the second is sequencing. Do, do I ask someone to, uh, do, do I pay people before I do the work or after I do the work? And then hedging, right? Oftentimes I'll have two or three contractors going, all trying to do the work at the same time so that no single point of failure, you know, will cause a total failure. You do a lot of that stuff in like automotive manufacturing, right? Even if someone has like the cool technology for the new air conditioner in your car or whatever, they're not going to let one manufacturer manufacture that technology. They'll force them to license it to two others so that there, there's no risk of systemic failure. And so if you think about those things, like how do you, what can you shift in the system so that no matter what happens when the bullets start flying, right? you have resilience 
in, in your process. You have resilience in your organization. And if you start thinking about your investments like that, your, your operations like that, you, what you're doing is you're constantly asking two questions. Uh, how do I maximize my optionality with every single step, every single decision? Because if you want to be successful in a changing world, what you want to do is perpetually increase your options. Um, and then the second question you want to be asking is, does this investment, does this way of doing things increase my potential, right? Because at the end of the day, having lots of options when you can't double down on one is, is useless. Right. So, so you want to be looking at those two things. And the way you do that is, is in, in many systems is like I said, looking at timing, you know, do I have to pay now or do I, can I change it to 30 or 60 days or whatever, um, uh, sequencing, do I pay before? Do I pay after? Uh, and then hedging is the last one, right? How do I make sure that uh, no matter what happens, uh, I have enough insurance, I have enough uh, other options that something is going to work out? Yeah. I, no, again, I love it. You're, you're, you're saying a lot of stuff that I really hope because knowing I have a lot of entrepreneurs on here, uh, some you know solopreneurs, some full-fledged small business entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I really hope you all are listening to, to what Jonathan is saying here because this is imperative to, I mean, he's already laid out the the, the numbers game there. This is imperative to uh, your success as, as a business owner. Um, but I'm kind of curious, you know, like, like you, you know, you worked at, at some big organizations, Hewlett Packard, and, and they had a lot of resources to be able to kind of future cast these sorts of things. Um, how, how is your average mom and pop, uh, you know, proprietor, uh, supposed to be able to, to look at an oncoming pandemic like COVID-19, how can mm -hmm. they, how can they be aware that something like that's coming down the pipe? So I would ask a different question. Uh, the, 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 the answer to the question you asked is, is you can't be ready for it. HP can't be ready for it either. That, that, uh, how do you be prepared for anything is, is, is a hard question, uh, to answer because, because you can't, right. Um, that's the nature of nature. It, it, it always right. wins. Uh, the, the question you want to be asking is, there are four basic buckets of, of risk. There's financial risk, operational risk, uh, external risk, and, and strategic risk. And it, we talk about this in the book, and I'm sorry but to, to, to go here, but we're, we're just going top level. If you want to get serious about this, like there's, there's a whole other level. Um, yep. When you look at those things in your organization, what you want to ask is what if any range of things uh, – occurred? Um, how would they impact me? How would they impact my organization? And so I, I have, uh, there's a, an HBR article I wrote about how we did this at HP. And I have a list of the 400 major business shocks that hit the US in the 20th century. Um, that's a good place to start. And, and the point here, so check out the HBR article. But the point here is if you take a look at any decade of the 20th century and you apply it to your strategy today, your business today, the question is, is will you be resilient to that scale of change? Will your finances uh, hold up? Will your operations hold up? So on and so forth. Um, 
because it doesn't matter what the shock is, the, the likely stressors on your organization, the likely places where, where things are going to crunch and get hit, um, they're probably relatively consistent. And those become your places for process innovation. The second thing you want to think about is your customer, right? They're not thinking this way. Very few people think this way. <laughs> There's a reason why some companies do so much better than others when disruption hits. Uh, and if you are there, you know, in that moment with the services to help keep them moving forward, that's invaluable. You know, in good times, everyone says they want the, the first class, uh, uh, ticket on on the luxury cruise liner but the second the titanic sinks everyone just wants a freaking lifeboat so how do you be that lifeboat when the world changes that's how you create outsized value that's how you charge excess rents right is by being the one option not being one of many mm. i like that i like that a lot and and you're right i mean that's the thing like you can ask that question all you want i like the way you responded to that because you know, let's just be honest. We live in a world where uh, I, I love this quote. It goes unattributed. Uh, if somebody knows who actually came up with it, please, uh, please share. Uh, but it says change is changing faster than change has ever changed before. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if, how many woodchucks uh, does that require? Uh, at least one. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you, you make a valuable point there because I had, you know, being in federal civilian service myself for quite a while, we, um, we had this false sense of security that, you know, Hey, this is a cushy job. There's security. It takes an act of Congress to, uh, to, to remove you from your job and all these things. Right. And then, uh, fast forward until we have a 30 plus day government shutdown where nobody's getting paid. And we, not everybody had, had planned for these things that you're talking about in the way that you're talking about planning for them. So, uh, the, this kind of volatil volatility, uncertainty, uh, it mm -hmm. can, the, these rogue waves can literally come from anywhere. And unless you're doing the things that Jonathan uh, has been talking about so far, you're, you're, you're going to get your boat rocked when, when the wave hits. Um, so I think with that, I think this is a good place real quick, Jonathan, to let's take our break, pay some bills and we come back. Let's let's unpack that idea a little bit deeper. How's that sound? Sounds fantastic. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. All right, folks, welcome back from that uh, break there. Reminder, we are talking with Jonathan Brill, author of Rogue Waves. Uh, and before the break, you know, we were talking about how to plan, how to how to look to the future. Um, 
And, and I, I'm kind of curious on this one because I love, uh, again, shout out to my friends at Interview Valet. I love everything that they do when they send me guests. It's just kind of a free, shameless plug for them because I love them so much. <laughs> uh, They're the best. But they, they really are. Uh, but they always send, and my listeners know this because I've talked about this before, they send some kind of interview topics like little question prompts, which which I love. But one of the questions on there, and I think this is a very outstanding question that everybody should be asking themselves is uh, how do you know when you're avoiding risk you should take and want to do instead? So how do people know if they're avoiding a risk that they should be taking? That's, that's a great question. I'm thinking about it uh, just a little bit. Uh, So, so in the book, we talk about this kind of five step process for understanding how to be successful in situations that you would often avoid. And it's called the, the rogue method. And it starts off with kind of reality testing. What do we know about the situation? Not what are our assumptions, not what used to be true, not what's our historical data, right? Uh, because the world changes all around us and it moves faster. Like you were saying about the world changing faster than it's ever changed. Uh, you know, even if we were right, we aren't necessarily right today. So how, how do you test reality? The second is looking systemically at the situation. Where, where is your leverage? What, what could change? What's the range of possible futures? Uh, and then looking at how you uncouple risks. And we provide a really good process in the book for doing this from opportunities. So that if you think about a decision tree, you know, uh, if you work it backwards, what are those key points? What are those key moments where, you know, if you made a slightly different different decision, the world could completely change. And as you do that, as you work through that in, you know, in, in, in strategic questions, um, how do you nip off the downsides? How do you nip off the things that can go truly bad and maximize the possibility of things going truly good? And then we were talking about this kind of hedging thing earlier about often all, all higher multiple contractors to explore an idea to try to do a thing instead of just hiring one, you know, what I'm really doing there is I'm, I'm, I'm creating a portfolio of experimentation, right? Like one of them will figure out how to do it better than the other. I'll tell the second one that this piece has been solved, like how you do it this way and so on and so forth. And so everybody ends up doing better as a result because we, we experiment as a portfolio instead of individually. And so when you do that, when you think through what I call the rogue method, which is what that is, uh, what you discover is that you can take risks that you wouldn't have imagined. It just requires looking a little harder at the problem, thinking a little harder, uh, about the problem, but you can take massive risk, uh, without the downside. If, if you know how an example, right? So it looks, you know, a lot of people are invested in, uh, fortune 500 index funds, right? And it turns out that, uh, after you get past about 32, 35, uh, stocks, like that distribution of risk falls off radically. And that means that you can actually choose 30 or 35 stocks with a better risk profile for you and get most of the upside without most of the downside. So if you're just like a little smart, smarter statistically about how you look at problems, how you solve problems, uh, you can 
take opportunities that would terrify other people without, without taking the risk. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a good strategy there. And, and, and I like those examples. Um, I like those examples a lot, especially the stock market. Cause uh, you know, I think that's the, the, the thing that mystifies everybody the most right now is the stock market. And wow, as we've seen, e- even just over the past few months, you want to talk about something that is changing quickly. Uh, everybody's made fortunes and lost fortunes over just, you know, the last few weeks, months. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like that. Um, but it, it is very, you know, it is very scary uh, to, to be in some of these positions and try to, to predict that future. And, and as you kind of pointed out there, it really just requires, I'm going to put this kind of, I know I'm putting too fine a point on the pencil when I say this, but, you know, just being aware, right? I mean, you, you've used that word already, but just being aware of what's going on around you and, and those trends and being willing to put forth that effort to try to, to, to make an analysis of where you are and where you need to be. And uh, I, I like the fact that Rogue Waves and listeners, I'm uh, highly recommending you grab a copy of this book because it gives you, as, as Jonathan's already talked about quite a bit, it gives you a good blueprint on how to do uh, a lot of these things. And uh, it, it is, you know, very scalable, I would say, depending on how big you are or how small you are, you can use these things, uh, same basic principles. Um, and, and I wanted to kind of give the listeners a quick rundown of the book here, right? Because we, we talk, we, we've talked about it. Um, but one of the things I like, and I like when a book is arranged like this. So I love, I I don't know if this is all your brainchild or if it was, uh, you know, if you had really good editors, but I like when a book gets broken down into easily digestible parts and, uh, the, the book starts out part one awareness and talks about some of these things that, that we've already talked about here. Uh, part two is behavior change. And that's where we get into the rogue method that was just, uh, brought up here. And what I love about it, again, being a military person, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a big we, fan we of acronyms. acronyms. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so for listeners, these are chapter titles. So I'm going to tease this out here because I, I, I loved looking down this list here. So here's what rogue stands for. Reality test, observe your systems, generate your futures, uncouple your opportunities from your threats and experiment. And those are the things that, that Jonathan's kind of talked about uh, here uh, already. Uh, but if you, unless you have something you just are burning to add to that, I'd like to jump into part three, culture change, because I think that's where we can make a lot of money right now because uh, coming out of the pandemic and, and organizations making decisions that they're having to make right now, I think we're going to have to go through a lot of culture change in our organizations, which is going to have to bring all of these skills you laid out in Rogue Waves to bear uh, to, to be able to handle this, you know, great resignation, the great redistribution, depending on how you look at it, all the things that's going on in the market right now. So mm-hmm. why why did you focus on part three as, as culture change? The way I think about it, we, we talked about the ABCs of resilient growth, right? Awareness, behavior, culture. Uh, if you want to future-proof your organization, you know, your, your people first need to understand the range of what's plausible, right? Not what's likely, uh, 
because what we think is likely is based on our our experience, which is literally statistically irrelevant in most cases. So, so we've got to actually understand the range of what's plausible uh, historically based on what's going on, what's changing in the world. Uh, what would happen when those things collide? You know, when individually manageable ways of change uh, collide to to become uh, a massive rogue wave. The second is behavior. So. You know, it doesn't matter if you know a tsunami is coming, if you've got the tsunami, you know, uh, siren going, if people don't know how to get off the beach, right? So you got to get the behaviors, you got to get the skills in place. But none of that matters. Everyone will just say it's not happening. You know, it's, it's, uh, what was the Sinclair's, Lewis's thing? Uh, uh, it's, it's hard to convince a man uh, of something he's paid not to understand. Um, (laughs) you know, something like that. Um, uh, my point is that unless you change the culture and unless you change the incentives, uh, around, uh, change around responding to it, uh, you know, people are not going to report to you that there's an iceberg out front. Uh, and, and when, when it hits they're they're not going to report to you that the, the, the hull is flooding. Uh, so you need to shift the way you think about uh, your culture from a command and control culture, like most of the the military, the Navy in particular, um, to one that, that really looks much more at how do you enhance communication laterally throughout the organization? And then how do you enhance communication? How do you shortcut it when it's necessarily, when it's necessary going up and down the chain of command? And so that's what we talk about in the, the, the last part of the book. And it really breaks down to, to three things. And, and as a military guy, you're going to like uh, some of this, not so much the other. right? How do you move from a captaining culture to a coaching culture? What are the things you need to do? What are the things you need to be putting in place as a leader uh, so that your people can operate without you? Right. Uh, the second piece is the op board, right? We've seen a shift in how we write op boards in the military in the last number of years uh, to focus less on what are you to do and more on what are you to do if something goes screwy, uh, if I don't come back, uh, if uh, the, the situation changes. And, and when you start, when you shift from giving orders, just tell, barking orders at people what to do, to helping them understand the, the, the operational context, uh, how you think it might change, your goals for them, the tasks you're asking them to do, who's in charge while you're gone, uh, and what to do uh, if you don't come back, and what to do if the entire world ends. You know, if you give them that information and we give you tools to do this in the book, uh, you give your people all of the information they need to innovate without you. Mm-hmm. My point is in a world of radical change, in a world of disruption as a leader, you need to be dealing with structural issues. You can't be caught up in telling people how to innovate when you need them to innovate faster than you can tell them what to do. And so we need to build these muscles in our organization uh, we need to also give our people basic executive communication skills to help them say things in a way that you will hear when 
things are crazy because we all know, you know, what happens the, the second that, that the bullets start flying, as you were saying earlier, right? We all put our blinders on and we all focus on what's in front of us, hopefully, instead of everything around. We've got to have ways for people to speak in those moments, in those situations, uh, so that they're heard, so that we take a step back and, and, and we hear that there's something on our flank. Uh, and the way you do that is 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 what I call the lead method. So asking people to first communicate what's the logic of what you're suggesting? What what do you think has changed? Uh, why do you think this is a good idea? Empathy. What do you understand about my situation, what I'm trying to achieve, uh, so that I can communicate what you're missing about that? Um, the third empathy, uh, uh, so, so, so that was empathy authority, right? Even though this person might not have a positional authority, right? What is it about their history, their background, what they might've learned when they were baby babysitting, uh, when they were 12, that, that feels a lot like this iceberg that's coming on. Uh, and then the last piece is a deadline, right? So, uh, we can mess around with this until Tuesday at six o'clock, but after that, there's going to be some you know, whatever the issue is, uh, that you ask them to clarify that. If you put these types of communication mechanisms in your organization, what you do is you cut off almost all of the ability for corporate antibodies to shut down that communication. Uh, and, and second, you maximize the likelihood because you're asking people to communicate in a process that you have said that you will listen to, that they get heard when you need to listen to them. Mm. I like that. I like, and, and the interesting part about it is, and this is one of the things I, uh, I, I try to do on this podcast is, is kind of set this idea of military leadership a little bit more straight than what Hollywood has, has put it out there. But, uh, I, I think we're closer in alignment than you might think there, Jonathan, because, you know, the one thing that we found out really quick in, in the military was outside of very finite, circumstances and those circumstances are almost entirely uh, confined to real-time combat operations where there is really no room for uh, you know for questioning uh, command and control it doesn't even work in the military uh, <laughs> you know uh, and, and it never has because people just aren't designed to operate that way as as a, a normal manner of function. And I go back to, you know, the, the guy that they, uh, they were lovingly referred to as old blood and guts, General Patton. You know, he famously has the quote says, don't tell people what to do, tell them what needs to be done and get out of their way and let them dazzle you with their brilliance. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so everything that you just mentioned there uh, is, is right on point. The, you know, talking about the operational orders there, you know, we, we operate under this thing called commander's intent where, that's what the, the intent of the order is, is, hey, I need you to take this hill. It's up to you to figure out how to strategically take this hill. Uh, the order doesn't come down and say, I want you to take this hill. I want you to take this unit and put it here and that unit and put it there. They, they filter that down to the lowest possible decision maker on the ground to be able to yep. make those decisions on how to pull off the objective of commander's intent, which again, I think is very much in alignment with what you're, you're talking here. So I, I really love that. Again, the acronym lead, I like that version of, I've, I've heard a lot of different lead acronyms, uh, but I think I like that one uh, the most. Uh, so I really, I really enjoyed that. Um, 
So I got one more question here for you before we kind of work on, on uh, you know, closing things out here. You mentioned the, the HBR article, and please make sure you get me uh, the link to that so I can put that in the, uh, in the show notes here because I, I agree with you. I think everybody needs to read it. Um, but if you were going to leave folks with, I don't know, one, two, three, I'll let you pick, uh, trends that are coming and, and going to be disrupting uh, in the 2020s, as you put it, like what, what are the trends that people should be looking out for? Great question. And I, one of the things that we didn't get to talk about earlier is this idea of a rogue wave that the thing that gets us isn't, you know, demographic change or, or the explosion of the data economy or automation rise of Asia, right? Cheap money. Right. Uh, right. And, and what do you how, how do governments deal with the combination of debt and interest rate and inflation? Right. It's, it's not any one of those. It's what happens when all five of those hit at the same time. And, and what does that mean for what happens next? Uh, my point is that when you take a look at the future, it's not about one thing. It's about the collision of multiple things. That's that's what we need to plan for. Uh, in the book, we uh, layout. We did about $15 million of research over three years to understand what we can and can't know about the future uh, when I was at HP. And, and so we lay that out for you in the book. Uh, what I think is going to be most interesting over the next couple of years is in America is the insight that uh, Chinese innovation uh, is growing radically. Uh, it's no longer uh, an innovation follower. It's increasingly an innovation leader. And we're going to see more and more, you know, China first products coming into the United States, coming uh, into the rest of the world. Uh, I just look at this. I was uh, talking with a dental uh, convention the other day, uh, just looking at the citations, the amount of, of dental innovation of all things, you know, coming out of China. It's not just that it's in everything. And we've got to stop thinking that, that, you know, innovation comes from America, the, 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 and, and that this shift of the rise of China is about the fall of America. It's about the rise of, of a great country. And how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that pure competition? Um, uh, on a trade basis, on a geopolitical basis, on on a capital basis, uh, and on a global you know global influence basis in terms of who sets standards, who sets regulations, we're going to have to rethink all of that. And I I don't I think America is a country is blind to the reality of this situation. Uh, that's the number one thing over the next three to five years that's going to change the world. Yeah, no, I like that. I mean, because it, it's uh, it's true, and as we become more connected, yes, COVID put a little bit of a hiccup in that connectivity piece. But as we become more and more of a connected world, uh, which is happening on the daily with everything that we do, from the technological advancements to uh, uh, you know to to make travel easier, to make just you know global communications easier. Um, yeah, we, we've got to pay attention to, you know, the, these global players like that. So I really I really do like that uh, because, you know, if, if we don't if we don't realize what Jonathan just said is true, we're doing ourselves a great disservice by not paying attention to to what they're doing. They're 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 a player just like anybody else right now that we need 
to to be aware of because they are they're they're playing in our backyard right now and uh, the the question is how do we cooperate how do we collaborate yeah. with the competitor yep. um because the op there isn't a second option we we you know we can't sh- this isn't like world war ii where we can shut it off until until the japanese decide that they're going to respond right like this is a thing we actually we, we can't pretend that it's on the other side of the world it, it, it touches us all the time every time now and so the reality is we've got to work with it instead of against it we've got to figure out what are those rules of cooperation and how do we build a better world together instead of trying to separate it and yeah and, no well said. Know, pick up well our pieces said. That, that won't work yeah no 100 percent. i agree that's exactly where i was going is this doesn't uh, as much as people would love you to believe that that's the only option, this doesn't have to be adversarial. We can figure this out together. It, it, it's not that it doesn't have to be. It's that it can't be. Yes. I like that. It that, cannot a good... be a zero-sum game. And so so how do we how do we shift the way we think, you know, is a country, is a species from we're this nation, that nation, to there's a bigger problem, which is independent of what we want you know, in the United States, what benefits us in the United States, you know, a billion more people will enter the U.S. level middle class between now and 2035. Uh, when you take someone out of rural poverty in Africa, you know, they take the and put them in Houston, they in the middle class in Houston, they use about 32 times as many resources. Right. So when you take that billion people and they're gonna rise they're gonna buy air conditioning and they start using 32 times as much resources right we aren't doubling the amount of resource use on the planet we're increasing it by an order of magnitude and we've got to deal with that issue we got to figure out how we share how we collaborate how we do better together a hundred percent i love it I love it. Well, Jonathan, uh, we really just, uh, you know, didn't even uh, scratch the surface uh, when it comes to uh, the book Rogue Waves. And and listeners, again, I really want you to go grab a copy of this book. There's a lot of great insight. Um, And I know we covered a lot, but I'm kind of curious. Is there anything that that you really want to leave listeners with before we close out? If you prepare for radical change, if you prepare for radical change, disruption. You can have a better life. You can have more fun. You can surf bigger waves than you have ever imagined. You know, the future isn't what happens to us. The future is what we make of it. Mm, I like that. I like that. You should put that on a, on a t-shirt or something, because that's good stuff right there. Uh, well, Jonathan, look, again, I, I've loved this conversation. I, I feel like there's probably at least another 10 or 12 hours worth of stuff that we could talk about here. But uh, we, we're probably uh, going to have to look at trying to get you back here on the show uh, sometime here in the future and, and uh, unpack some of this a little bit deeper uh, if the opportunity avails itself. But I just want to say this, man. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for tackling the topics that you're tackling. Uh, thank you for gracing us with your your smooth voice there and and uh, and laying these things out bare. And uh, listeners, I want you to go back and listen to some of these uh, solid gold nuggets here that Jonathan has left with us because he has left you with a ton of information. And if you really do want to go and dig deeper in the surface uh, and, and get a more in-depth understanding of this stuff, 
Get yourself a copy of Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. Um, but again, Jonathan, thank you very much for everything. It's been a great conversation. And uh, thank you for being a great guest here on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Earl, man. It's fantastic to be here. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that... I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the shit? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid.